Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the OsteoTalk podcast. I'm your host, Emily Bergman. Today's interview is focused on the often challenging presentation of dizziness and vertigo. I am joined by Melbourne-based osteopath, Dr. Beth Yule. Being a chronic headache sufferer herself gave Beth unique insight into the impact headaches can have on a patient's quality of life. This inspired Beth to focus her professional development on headaches, migraines, and vestibular disorders. Beth now passionately and generously shares her expertise with patients, colleagues, and the wider osteopathic community. She co-authored the book, Solving the Migraine Puzzle, a comprehensive guide to migraine relief, and has presented webinars and articles for Osteopathy Australia. Today, Beth helps us simplify our approach to dizziness presentations and discusses vestibular migraines and vestibular disorders. Welcome to the podcast, Beth, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for thank you for having me. <laughs> so, can you give, begin by giving us a brief description of what dizziness is and why it's such a problem? Uh, so, a lot of people will describe dizziness and vertigo and get them interchangeable when they're described a little bit different. But uh, for myself, I kind of put them in the same category. So. With vertigo, then it's a sensation of you or the room is spinning. Um, and so there's movement when obviously it's not, whereas dizziness is more of a lightheaded, swaying, rocking sensation that's going on that can be described, uh, sorry, that can be caused by many different things. Um, the most common reasons why someone will have dizziness or vertigo are due to a central problem, so something like a vestibular migraine. BPPV being uh, one of the most common causes of dizziness, which is fantastic because it's also one of the easiest things to treat. Um, then you've also got anxiety, which can also create dizziness. However, unfortunately, it is also way too overblamed for dizziness. You've also got medications that can cause dizziness. Um, you've got unknown reasons. You've got heart problems that can cause dizziness. So understandably, there are so many things that can cause dizziness. And um, understandably, we're not going to be able to treat all of those. But there are many different things that we can do to help dizziness um, and being able to help to identify those and identify them properly um, is going to be really important so that we can actually um, tailor our treatment towards those. A lot of people are impacted severely due to work, their activities, daily living. Dizziness always creates anxiety. I don't think I've met a single patient who's dizzy who hasn't had an element of anxiety created by their dizziness. And it usually impacts so many areas of their lives because they don't know what to do about their dizziness. And why is it so hard to diagnose? Essentially, for a lot of the dizziness conditions, they really do start to look the same. So it's, it can be very hard for people to know in which direction to go for um, because a lot of people find it really hard to describe what their dizziness feels like. 
So most of the time when someone says, well, can you describe your dizziness? They go, I don't know, or like, it's hard to describe. It's usually started off with, it's hard to describe, but, and different words can start pointing you in different directions of the different um, dizziness disorders. Um, And then also the different triggers, the different attributes, the different um, relieving factors as well can point you in the different directions of the dizziness disorders. But a lot of the time there is a huge amount of crossover between them. So you really do have to have the time, the energy, the commitment and trial and error sometimes to be able to play that detective to find the dizziness disorder and the right one for the person as well as working on the stress and anxiety components of it because stress and anxiety will always work to exacerbate the dizziness. So if you're not working on the two together, you will find it very hard to bring down the anxiety uh, and bring down the dizziness. So they do usually need to be worked on together. And so if you're not doing those, you don't have the energy, you don't have the time, you don't have the expertise to be playing that detective with the dizziness, then often you're kind of shooting in the dark, take a stab at it, oops, that didn't work. And then they're stuck with their dizziness. They get more anxious, their system gets more stirred up and then they've still got their dizziness. Yeah. Well, you're, you're help us. You're here to um, help give us some pointers on how we can uh, help narrow down some causes. So can you talk to us about some, uh, some of the red flags for dizziness and vertigo? Uh, like a lot of things, if it's new, it's sudden um, it, for no apparent reason, and particularly if it's increasing in symptoms, then it's a red flag. Um, you do also want to put it in context, though. So for something like BPPV, it does come on suddenly um, and it does come on at quite an intense level of symptoms. So you put it in context. Um, so using your knowledge, obviously, but particularly if it's coming on with other neurological symptoms. So if someone's getting pins and needles, tingling, numbness, weakness, um, if they've got sudden head pain, particularly if it's a high level of head pain, especially if it's associated with neck pain as well, then that would be a red flag. Um, particularly, you know, if they've got it with head movements on end range, a lot of dizziness disorders, then they will get dizziness with head movements, like with BPPV. But it's not just the head movement, it's at the end range position. We know we're looking for something like um, a VBI condition going there. Um, so it's usually that it's a, of a sudden onset with other things as well. It's getting worse. There aren't things that will settle it down in particular. Um, that anything to do with a sudden onset of head pain as well. They haven't experienced it before. Also, if your spidey senses are going off and you think that it feels wrong or if it sounds wrong, your clinical judgment is usually quite correct. So it's always better to get it investigated than not. So that would be there. Also, just making sure that, you know, again, putting it into context, however, that if they've had a recent cold or an ear infection, they started a new medication or wearing glasses or those sorts of things, I'd be asking those things first just to make sure that there isn't a really obvious answer as to why they got their dizziness. But, yeah, making sure that if they do have any of those neurological signs or symptoms, I'd definitely be saying, hey, go get it checked out just to make sure that you're A-OK. Okay. What, 
what are the characteristics of the, I mean, are there any particular characteristics to the dizziness that might occur with a serious central cause like, um, you know, a vascular event? Uh, so with those sorts of things, then um, if you had like a serious uh, central problem, then we'd be looking for things like ataxia. So loss of control of um, like muscles, balance, walking. Um, if you can get dizziness, certainly with a stroke as well. So if they were losing control of their speech or their face or um, smiling, drooping eyes, those sorts of things, then definitely those would be red flags. But I would be almost more concerned about the other things and hopefully they would be presenting with those things and telling me about those things more so than the dizziness. Okay. Um, and that, But if they were presenting with dizziness as their predominant symptom, you'd be looking at those things as well and asking for those things. Okay, sure. Um, what is a vestibular migraine? So a vestibular migraine, a lot of people get tripped up with vestibular migraine because it's got vestibular in it. So they start treating a vestibular migraine different to other migraines. A vestibular migraine is actually just a migraine. It just happens to be the dizziness migraine. So it is a central nervous system disorder, like all migraines are, and the predominant symptom is dizziness. So they can describe it in many different ways. It is less likely to be a vertigo sensation. It's less likely to be a spinning, a room spinning sensation. Um, some people might describe it a little bit more like that. Again, they have their own feelings about it, but it's more likely to be that their head feels a bit dissociated from them, a lightheadedness, a swaying, um, off balance, those sorts of things. It can last from minutes to hours to days um, and it can be episodic. It can be constant. Migraines can be constant, but if it's constant, then it still will have those episodic periods where it goes for like four to 72 hours where you have that increase in symptoms and then it decreases back down. With a vestibular migraine though, then it will get set off by the same types of things that regular migraines do. So what does a regular migraine get set off by? Well, it gets set off by lack of sleep, and foods, um, it gets set off by bright lights and stimulus and stress and those sorts of things. So, and neck pain, clenching your jaw and those sorts of things. So if you take the word vestibular out of it and you think of it like a regular migraine, it will get set off by all the same things. If you then treat it with the same things that you would with a regular migraine, like your triptans and preventative medications, which is what people have usually done so not that we're treating them with those things, but people will have usually gone for those things, then those things should help a vestibular migraine if they're going down the medication pathway. They usually will have some kind of anti-nausea medication as well because they're usually feeling nauseous with the dizziness as well. And head pain doesn't have to be the most common symptom with a vestibular migraine because, as I said, the dizziness is usually the most um, common feature when it comes time for a vestibular migraine. So when it comes time for a vestibular migraine being a central nervous system disorder, then there's actually nothing wrong with the vestibular system. So you're receiving all of the information A-OK. -okay. It comes in through the ears, the eyes, everywhere, correct. But when it gets to your brainstem, when it gets to your brain, that's when it gets a little hinky. It doesn't process the information correctly. So if we think about the information in terms of lines, you get all the information incorrectly as a straight line. When it gets to the brain, 
it turns into a zigzag and that's when you get the dizziness. So that's how that one gets processed. Uh, is there, are they still likely to get the headache with a vestibular migraine or can the dizziness be sort of the exclusive symptom? They can get a headache with a vestibular migraine. Some people, they, they do report it. Some people, if you ask them about it, they go, look, it might be in the background, but they're not overly concerned about it. Some people will put it on equal stance with the dizziness, but usually it's the dizziness that is definitely the predominant symptom that's coming with it. So yes, can certainly be there, but it's usually the dizziness that's right up there. And it doesn't have to be present. The pain doesn't have to be present for a vestibular migraine. Okay. And what is, are there any relieving factors? So other than potentially medications, mm -hmm. is there mm -hmm. anything patients can do say during an episode that can help to sort of reduce their sensation of dizziness or vertigo? Absolutely. <laughs> So during that time, then doing things like neck stretches, and I would be going more for neck mobilization rather than like stretching out of the muscles because it's usually the joints that have gotten stuck rather than the muscles per se that have gotten tight. Um, but doing neck mobilization things, um, so going forwards and backwards with the head, so more in a retraction position, um, if they are... Um, I just was watching Emily doing, doing her retractions, chicken motions. <laughs> and that, we, we all look great doing our retraction motions. Everyone likes the double um, <laughs> I would be less inclined to get someone with a vestibular migraine to do a neck circle. They're already feeling dizzy. So getting them to go in a circle, less likely to be doing that. But if they feel comfortable enough going from side to side, like looking over their shoulder or dropping their ear to their shoulder, mm -hmm. something like that, and then it's basically whatever they feel comfortable with doing. But that's why a retraction motion forwards and backwards usually is quite nice because they're going in, in, in um, an even plane. Um, and also it encourages those joints, the headache and migraine joints, to move in quite a nice way. Uh, doing things as well, like if you've got a belt and you want to give them exercises with a belt to get um, the neck moving, it requires less movement of the neck, but it's more specific to get the joints moving in the neck. So that's quite nice. Anything that basically helps them be calm and not tense up through the area. So heat packs or ice packs to the area. It doesn't really matter which one, so long as they're comfortable. Some people during a migraine hate heat. They hate it. The idea is horrible. So you're not going to recommend a heat pack if they don't like that, but vice versa. Some people hate ice, so they're always going to reach for heat. Neither one is going to be bad it's a user preference really okay. um magnesium oil as well to the back of the neck for tight muscles anti-inflammatory gel as well taking extra magnesium so magnesium as a supplement is really good for migraines but sometimes taking extra magnesium during that time is really good ginger is really good for nausea um, and those sorts of things so they can all be really good um, if someone feels up for going for a walk um, even just around the house, that can be helpful. But sometimes, particularly on glary days and going outside is less good for a vestibular migraine. So okay. those are usually the best recommendations. Would you treat someone during a migraine episode? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. So the migraine is a central condition. Um, can you talk about the vestibular disorders that are peripheral in origin? 
So with a vestibular disorder, so before with a vestibular migraine, we were saying that essentially the information comes in fine, but then when it gets to the brain, then it turns into a zigzag. So it doesn't get processed correctly. And then that's when it turns into dizziness. With a vestibular disorder, however, the information isn't coming in correctly. So it's it's getting hinky when it gets to the ears, it's getting hinky when it comes to the eyes and that. So it's already coming in as a zigzag. When it gets to the brain, it's processed fine, but the information was already a zigzag. So with both conditions, vestibular migraine and vestibular disorder, the information is both of them coming out as a zigzag, but it's where the zigzag originated from. So with a peripheral disorder, then with something like BPPV or labyrinthitis or vestibular neuritis or Meniere's disease, which are some of the most common vestibular disorders, then they're happening not at the brain level, they're happening at like the ear level predominantly. So with BPPV, we know that it's the crystals in the inner ear, labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis. Then there's been inflammation that have been happening around um, the nerves in the inner ear. Um, and so, as I said, it's the information that's coming in that's not correct. Um, and then it gets processed okay when it gets to the brain level, when it uh, gets to the central level. So when it comes time for a vestibular disorder, then it needs to be treated differently. So it also gets set off by different things. So when we said with a vestibular migraine, with central disorders, then they more get set off by things like diet and sleep and stress and food triggers and those sorts of things, which are more affecting the brain. The things that happen internally within the body, but not to your vestibular system because it's not your vestibular system that is impacted. It's the brain, it's your central system. With a peripheral disorder, however, then it's things that are actually going to affect your vestibular system. So with BPPV, we know that it's when you turn your head and it's when you roll over in bed and when you try to sit up. The same thing with labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis and Meniere's disease and other peripheral disorders. You are more likely to see it when something is impacting your vestibular system. So if you turn your head, if you're scrolling on your phone and you're, you have to follow the screen or follow the words on the screen, then your eyes have to look up and down and track the words. But your eyes are a part of, um, send signals as a part of your vestibular system. And so if you can't track the words properly, then that will make you dizzy. So it's about finding where in the vestibular system that zigzag is coming from and going, okay, that's where it's making me dizzy from. So for sometimes it's turning the head, sometimes it's tracking of the eyes, um, and sometimes it's a combination of all of the above. So it needs to be treated differently. So if someone's getting set off by a food, it's not going to be a vestibular disorder. With um, So what would be our main sort of distinguishing feature between, say, BPPV and labyrinthitis? With these, uh, so like with labyrinthitis, then um, you tend to get more of like a fullness in the ear um, and like real ear sort of symptoms, a blocked ear, fullness in the ear, tinnitus and those sorts of things. Definitely with all sorts of vestibular um, conditions, you can get those sorts of things. But with labyrinthitis, you're really kind of expecting something to go on with the ear. 
BPPV, we do know that there's that um, real movement associated with it. Like, you know, it's the classic, you know, you roll over in bed, whoop, the room is spinning. You're definitely expecting that more spinning sensation. But also when you're at rest, when you stop, then you expect BPPV to stop as well, that you're fine at rest. Um, with labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis, then people can just have constant dizziness as well. Um, and that, that is always a bit stirred up. Um, that being said, and just to throw a bit of a curveball in there, in recent times, I think I've had about 30 to 40 patients over the last couple of months since the lockdowns. I've had people with chronic BPPV and they have presented with um, ongoing B uh, BPPV symptoms uh, that would look a little bit different than what you would be anticipating. Mm. So... Yes, that's when it gets like, you know, hard in the crossover with that. So it does get a little bit hard to distinguish between BPPV, labyrinthitis, vestibular neuritis, Meniere's disease and those sorts of things. The biggest thing that I would say is that it's um, more important from the average point of view to go, is it a vestibular migraine or is it a vestibular disorder, first of all? And then if you're not 100% sure if it's um, BPPV or labyrinthitis or something like that, then you'd be going into the Dix Hall Pike maneuver because the Dix Hall Pike maneuver would tell you if it's BPPV or if it's not. And that's a nice, easy test. Yep. Okay. Um, and with which conditions would you expect to potentially have some hearing loss with as a differentiating feature? Uh, with that one, then you'd definitely expect Meniere's disease over time. Okay. Um, and that with the other ones, if someone was experiencing hearing loss with something like vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, then I would be more surprised. Labyrinthitis, then I would expect that they would have more of a fullness in the ear or like that blocked sensation, but like true hearing loss, probably not. Okay. So what are some of the common signs and symptoms that help you distinguish between a vestibular migraine and a vestibular disorder? If their symptoms are set off by movement, like true movement as in something like a head check or um, sitting up from bed in the morning or, as I said, like scrolling on your phone and like I'm finding it really hard to track something or when I'm sitting on my computer screen and like, you know, there's busy things that are going on on my computer screen like that, then I would more expect it to be something like a vestibular disorder. So true movement or like when I'm cooking and I'm looking around and about and I'm nodding my head up and down, I would expect it to be a vestibular disorder because you can see that the vestibular system is upset in some way, shape or form. If, however, it was things like, look, sitting at my computer for a long period of time is upsetting me, that one's a bit ambiguous because you don't know if it's the screen or if it's just been sitting there and it's more posturally related, so whether that's a migraine or not. That one's a little bit wishy-washy. Stress and anxiety is always going to upset both conditions because stress and anxiety will heighten any dizziness disorder. So that one's a bit ambiguous. But if it was I eat this food and it sets off my dizziness, I would expect that it would be more of a vestibular migraine. If it was I smell this smell and it sets off um, my dizziness, I would expect that it would be more of a vestibular migraine. Same thing with weather changes, like a storm hit and, whoa, my dizziness went crazy. I would expect that it would be more of a vestibular migraine. These sorts of things are definitely more classic of a migraine territory. 
Um, and it's the same thing with like, oh, I woke up and my neck was feeling terrible, vestibular migraine. With um, more specifically with BPB, BPPV, can any range of movement trigger symptoms or does it tend to be rotation or is it sort of dependent on what canal is affected? Uh, definitely it can present um, with the different canals in terms of what's affected, but definitely it's about 80% um, that rotation would be the predominant um, affected like motion and that but certainly a lot of people when they have bppv then bending over and trying to tie up their shoe is really hard as well um so you would definitely expect the rotation would be um one of the hardest motions but sitting up from bed that sets them off which is definitely an up down motion so i uh, bending uh, if they're bending over and tying up their shoe then it's the same motion essentially as trying to um sit up from bed so yeah they usually avoid those. How do you go about assessing dizziness conditions? The three ways that I go about assessing dizziness conditions, and these are very general um, when you don't know specifically how to assess or treat dizziness. So this is to help generally um, is the first thing, if I didn't know at all because they're looking very confusing in terms of is it a vestibular migraine is it bppv is it vestibular neuritis i'm not sure i'm going to run through everything to cover all of my bases i would always do a dick's hall pike maneuver because if it's bppv great easy that's a beautiful fix that's very nice so i'd always do a dick's hall pike maneuver the thing that i would say about the dick's hall pike maneuver that I have noticed in recent times, as I said before, I've had about 30 to 40 patients recently who have had chronic BPPV, is that we always look for an nystagmus for it to be positive for BPPV. In these patients who have had chronic BPPV, I have hardly noticed a nystagmus because they have had lower lying symptoms, but they're happening every day, all day, every day. And I haven't noticed a nystagmus. So if someone's got lower levels, so they're not walking into the clinic, super nauseous, vomiting, like stumbling in, and it's been like a very acute, like two days worth of BPPV symptoms, but they've been having it for like two months or so, I would still do a Dick's Hall Pike maneuver. And if it looks like it's positive and you do an Epley maneuver afterwards, and it seems to be getting better, and they don't have a nystagmus, I would still be taking them through that because it's improving, it's getting better, and I personally wouldn't be so concerned because I've gotten people better with that with zero nystagmus. Other people might say they need a nystagmus, they 100% need a nystagmus. If I've gotten them better without a nystagmus, they got better. And that's right. Because people, people have had it ruled out as that condition because there was zero nystagmus, but they got better very quickly with that. So that's what I would say in regards to that. Um, but I would always do a Dick's Hall Pike maneuver to see whether it was BPPV if I didn't know at all what it was. Because as I said, if it's BPPV, nice, easy fix. That's great. The second thing that I would then do is a VOMS screen, which is a vestibular oculomotor testing. 
So this is traditionally used for concussion patients, but in concussion patients, then there's three elements for um, treating those patients anyway. And one of those is vestibular rehab if they need it. So the VOM the screen essentially takes you through a series of um, tests to test different pathways of their vestibular um, system. And so you go through different eye movements, different head movements, and it tests different um, pathways of their vestibular system. And basically it can help to identify whether different pathways are affected or not. And the aim is that it's provocative. Like your Dick's Hallpike, if something comes up positive, then it should give them dizziness. You would be watching their eyes to also see if you visually can see if they're struggling, but also you would um, be asking them, is this reproducing your familiar symptoms? Are you feeling nauseous? Is it giving you a headache? Are you experiencing your dizziness? And going from there. Sometimes people, if they've had long-standing vestibular migraines, they can also have decompensation and have a little bit of a vestibular disorder as well. So it might be, yeah, it's giving me something, but it's not quite my thing there. So you might need to treat that as well. Um, but it's always good to do the screen because if you're finding something there or, hey, you've hit the nail on the head, you've found your vestibular neuritis, perfect, great, you're going to treat it. Now they can look at the computer screen again. They're not struggling, beautiful, delightful. But also this assessment works as your treatment. If you find it, that's your treatment. So your assessment works as your treatment as well. Then you would go on to your next thing, which would be looking at their cervical spine and the adjacent areas through there. And then this covers your vestibular migraine. So uh, the upper cervical spine is predominantly the area that is responsible for migraines. So in terms of a hands-on area. So looking at the upper cervical spine, C1, 2, 3, seeing um, in that area, if it's looking beautiful, if it's looking um, like really soft, really mobile, and that it's not going to be a vestibular migraine. If, however, it's really blocked, jammed up, tense, tight, which it can be in a vestibular disorder as well, because people walk around really stiff and stuck, it would need treating anyway in a vestibular disorder. But um, so you would always do that with a vestibular disorder, but in a vestibular migraine, then like you would need to be assessing that area, treating that area, check the jaw and also work with associated areas as well. So with all of them, making sure that you're addressing stress and anxiety and any other areas that you think need to be worked on. So for vestibular migraines, magnesium, if they need help with their sleep posture, their diet, so forth and so on. Okay. The assessments you talked about, is that something you think we can, is in our scope of practice to perform without having done further training? With those, yes. I do think that those are quite, like, those okay. are definitely quite doable. There are a whole bunch of other tests that you can do that you would definitely need to go on some level of course um, yeah. to do. But with the VOM screening, then those tests are relatively easy to do so with those and I've taken people through them um, in a relatively short period of time the aim for the VOM screen is essentially um, for one of the tests for instance you hold your fingers out like like hockey sticks or like you know goalposts, just wider than your shoulders and the patient's head stands stays still and you just flick your eyes between the two fingers 
and just keep going back and forth. And you basically look at their eyes and go, cool. What are they doing? Can they do it easily? Is their head moving as their eyes bounce back and forth between the fingers? So can they do it easily or are they trying to cheat because they're really struggling to do it? As they're doing it, are their eyes slowing down or can they maintain an even tempo? So that's what you're looking for visually. But then asking for the patient, like, how are you experiencing this? And if they start to increase in their symptoms, and this is their familiar symptoms, then it's, a, okay, you need to stop now because we don't want to stir you up. We don't want to send them away feeling terrible. So then it's, okay, and stop. That's great. This is going to be your exercise to take home. And you adjust accordingly because it's a, it's teaching the body that, hey, this is a safe, um, this is a safe environment and going through there. There's reps and sets um, that can be done um, safely, but it's a relatively easy one that can be done. Um, but that one doesn't require too much in-depth going okay. through there. And yeah. Can you point us in the direction of a good resource or some good resources if people do want to learn more about the um, the testing you've talked about? Look, even just going on YouTube and doing them, yeah. Yeah. Like, and that then they, they basically cover it pretty well. Okay, great. Um, and that there are, there are ones like even just the top one that I just clicked on physio physiotherapyalberta.ca. Yep. Yep. Then Great. they they cover it, they cover it pretty well. Um, like they've got the vestibular ocular reflex, they've got the visual motion sensitive, um, they've got smooth pursuits and saccades. Their form is actually pretty good and yep. getting you to test it and that. So like most of the resources when you Google it, it actually covers it pretty well. YouTube has it all. Yeah. Can you um, how how do you approach your uh, treatment for vestibular migraines versus dizziness disorders? So when it comes time for dizziness disorders, then if it's actually just a dizziness disorder, then it's all about vestibular rehab. So you've got to find where the dysfunction is, and then addressing that, making sure that it's also at an appropriate level for the person. So basically the body is telling you that it's in trouble and it's sending you a signal saying, I need help. And that's why it's giving you dizziness. So that's when you need to play investigator and say, hey, okay, that's where it's coming from and I'm going to help you. But it's in threat mode at the moment. When you do vestibular rehab exercises, you're trying to help take the body out of threat mode and say, it's okay, it's safe, we can do these motions. When you're doing the exercises, however, you are taking them into slightly threatening territory so that it gets used to that and recalibrates back down. If you keep taking them into really danger threat territory, so well above their threshold, the body never learns that it is safe and it won't come back down so they will always stay dizzy. So it's about making sure that you're giving them the appropriate exercises for their level so that they actually get better as well. So too often then people will also come in and said, but I've done these types of exercises before and it didn't work. So not only being able to identify what is actually wrong, that's a great start, but making sure that you're giving the appropriate exercises for the person in front of you making sure that you've got the right reps, the right sets, the right speed, 
um, and that so that the person in front of you is actually getting um, better and seeing improvements. If they're not seeing improvements, then there's a problem with that. So you've got to adjust something. The other thing with vestibular rehab exercises is that they should be provocative. If the person isn't experiencing an increase in their symptoms when they're doing the exercises, then it's not it's not the right exercise for them. So again, a lot of people have actually been given these types of exercises and I'm like, well, did it actually increase your dizziness? No, then why are we doing them? Because that's the point of the exercises. It's supposed to increase their symptoms. So sometimes they can go in the, like, the wrong way either way. But for vestibular disorders, then th that's what um, it's focused on. It's focused on the vestibular rehab and then also doing some hands-on work towards their neck because when someone is dizzy, they move very robotically. They don't move their neck because they're trying to protect themselves, whether they know it or not. So making sure that you're working on the neck, calming that down because your neck is a part of your vestibular system as well because there's so many um, proprioceptors there. Um, and so they also feel a lot more comfortable and it helps with their headache as well. With a vestibular migraine, however, then that is quite different. So um, if they have a secondary vestibular disorder, then you might give them a bit of an exercise for that. That, per, uh, that wouldn't really be the primary. That might come later. Um, but that is really focused on like the upper part of the neck, the jaw, if that's a problem in association with that, um, and making sure that you're addressing the other factors. So do they have sleeping issues? Are they sleeping four hours a night or are they sleeping eight hours a night? Is it good quality sleep or is it bad quality sleep? Are they sleeping on their stomach or are they sleeping on their side or their back? Um, are they eating one time a day and it's rubbish food or are they eating three meals a day and it's wholesome food that's actually nurturing their body? Um, are they going out for any form of exercise and fresh air or are they just sitting at their desk all day every day feeling stressed and tight um, and stiffening up their bodies and doing those sorts of things as well that are obviously going to be stirring up their system and encouraging their body to keep producing migraines. So attacking it from many different angles to help the body and their central nervous system calm down to try to shift that migraine. And from both disorders, making sure that their anxiety um, and their stress levels are addressed and trying to de-threaten the conditions so that that's not constantly playing on their minds or else it's always going to feed into both conditions and make it harder to get rid of both conditions. In terms of a manual therapy approach, are there particular techniques that you find effective that you use commonly? Uh, so when it comes time for both, then my treatment approach is really centered around the Watson headache approach. Um, and then I incorporate other things as needed. So the Watson headache approach is really focused around C123. Um, you can't have a healthy C123 unless you have a healthy bottom part of the neck. So I always make sure that C4 to 7 is healthy, um, healthy and mobile. I then also make sure that the jaw is in a good place because a lot of the time people are clenching and grinding their teeth. Um, and obviously if they're clenching and grinding their teeth and that has a negative impact on the um, top joints as well, 
So usually I go in and I release pterygoids, make sure that if they have um, actual TMJ pain, then releasing their jaw. Um, I like doing METs in particular to their jaw um, if we've got serious issues going on in there. Um, a lot of my work is done prone and doing PAs to the um, to the neck. Yep. Um, and that, and then otherwise, I do some uh, basically articulation work to the upper thoracics and the ribs, and that's what most of my treatment style looks like. Okay. And then giving at home exercises like mobilization exercises, retractions, belted arctic exercises, those sorts of things for people. Okay. Uh, what about cervical HVLA? Is that something that you use, that you find effective, that you don't use? For chronic headache and migraine patients um, or vestibular disorders, it's not something that I use. Yep. Um, it's, yeah, I have nothing against cervical HVLA. For non-headache and migraine patients or neck pain patients or that, then it's something that I still would use and I use HVLA in other parts of the body um, with people who have very stiff restricted chronically restricted headache and migraine joints then it's not something that I would use I haven't found it effective I found that people who are coming to me have often had it as a part of their therapy and haven't found it effective they might enjoy the sensation but haven't found it effective hence they're now at my clinic um, it's also not a part of the Watson headache approach um, and that, and the Watson headache approach itself is based on uh, long sustained holds um, and yeah, the way in which it, it works, the HVLA kind of contradicts that approach. And given that I found that that approach is so effective, that's also part of the reason yep. why I wouldn't incorporate that. Yep. Fantastic. Okay. And is there anywhere you think we can go wrong in terms of our manual therapy that might exacerbate symptoms? Um, definitely with any dizziness patients. I have had a couple of patients who have come in who have had manipulations that are to their cervicals that have come in who have been made worse. Um, and that, so I would be more on the cautious side when you have any kind of dizziness patient doing a cervical manipulation, but any other kind of headache or migraine patients or that, if you do find it effective, then that's a part of your treatment approach. So that would be, that would be fine. But for dizziness patients, I would probably err on the side of caution just because if it was a vestibular disorder, and you did a manipulation and it accidentally upset the vestibular system, then you can really make a dizziness patient worse. And they're already very dizzy. It's not like you can take a painkiller for it. They get very anxious. And so I'd be very much erring on the side of caution with dizziness conditions and more going more gentle with them. Yeah. The same thing with the vestibular rehab exercises. Slow and steady is usually better than trying to go gung-ho and fixing it all in one because if you stir them up, they're usually stirred up for days. Mm. Um, and that, So uh, with any of the techniques that are done, I would go slow, learn their bodies, see how they react, 
and that and then be more inclined to go a little gung-ho okay and when do you think we need to refer on um so really when it comes time for dizziness patients the biggest thing that i would say is just acknowledge that they are not having a great time so for a lot of things we are capable of treating an awful lot of things and that I think that some people um, want to do their best learn their best um, and that and uh, uh, to say practicing is wrong but they're trying to put their knowledge and implement it into patients and try to help the best that they possibly can um, and that, but particularly for dizziness patients, and they're really going through a hard time. So if you have, if you are trying like your absolute best, but you can see that you're not doing so well, or you have reached a limit, or your knowledge just simply isn't there for them, please refer on sooner rather than later to someone who do who does have the knowledge. There are certain things where. It's okay. It, it might be okay to take a little bit more time, um, and that and figure it out. For dizziness patients, they really are having a terrible time, and the longer that it goes on, the more they lose hope and the more anxious that they get because they are usually very compliant with their exercises as well because they want it gone as soon as possible. So, by all means, help them. Try to help them. But if you're finding that you, you're struggling a bit or you're not sure where it's coming from, refer on and ask what somebody else is doing and that learn through their experience rather than trying to learn yourself through that process. Um, other times as well, um, then if something really isn't feeling right um, and you really think that it needs like investigations further, know that a lot of the investigations that are done through doctors or ENTs and that they're looking for serious things. So when it comes time for those, if you think that something serious is happening, by all means, refer, 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 refer. Make sure that um, you're getting it checked sooner rather than later. But otherwise, refer to people that um, would, uh, as I said, have more knowledge in the area than yourself sooner rather than later. Um, yes, and work collaborat collaboratively with them and also just know that it can be multifactorial their gut might be playing a role um refer if this anxiety particularly is playing a massive role then you might need to refer to a psychologist you might need to refer back to their doctor to refer them to a psychologist or for additional help or those sorts of things so uh, remember to look at them as a whole person rather than just the dizziness itself as well fantastic well, thank you so much for helping us navigate through some of the complexities of, complexities of dizziness presentations. So, yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.